let's get started. I'm Dr. Suzanne Snyder, and this is HIV AIDS Update, and let's open with a word of prayer. Dear God, we just thank you as the creator of the universe and the creator of this day that you are with us and you've made each one of us, and your word promises that you know the plans you have for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans for hope and a future. And so, God, as we come into this session, I just pray that uh, you'll open our ears and eyes and hearts to learn whatever lessons you have for us to learn. Help me to just speak your words um, of instruction and encouragement. And, Lord, whatever we do, what, what we do for Jesus is what is really going to count. And so as we go forward to try to bring the rest of the world into a saving relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, just bless us in this day and this lecture. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, I have lived and worked in Kenya, Africa, uh, as a medical missionary for 16 years uh, with Christian Missionary Fellowship, and I still serve as a medical consultant with them. I also uh, volunteer with World Medical Mission, um, Samaritan's Purse, the Operation Heal Our Patriots program in Alaska, and Montana. Um, I'd like to dedicate this talk to my dad, who died a week ago, and... Um, Having him live with me and caring for him for three years was really my primary mission field. And uh, he's with Jesus now. He's doing great. I'm still struggling a little bit. But he was a great uh, supporter of missions and me. Okay, we're going to be looking at HIV-AIDS worldwide, looking at some of the current demographics and also what are some of the changing trends and the newest updates and guidelines for diagnosis, management, treatment, and care. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of not just medical but social and cultural issues in terms of successes and challenges and consider, well, why is HIV-AIDS still a problem? As I said, if you don't know me, um, I was a missionary, a medical missionary in Kenya, Africa for 16 years. I lived and worked among the Maasai tribe group. Um, I was the only doctor on our team of church planners and evangelists, and so our family focused on the medical ministry, which was oversight of five clinics in remote village locations. There were no other medical care facilities in those communities, and so our clinics, even though very simple, with no um, x-ray, no hospital beds, no um, very just simple facilities and lab and ambulatory care services, they were the only care in those communities and provided some tremendous services. And they continue to this day. Um, there are now uh, 10 clinics uh, in the unit, and uh, they are self-governing. There are no missionaries there any longer on a full-time basis and uh, sustaining, which is so exciting. Um, they allow me to stay on the board, and so I go once a year to see them, to participate in the board, and uh, spend as much time as I can working there with them in the clinic system. I just got back two weeks ago, and so um, what I learned while I was there in terms of the current treatment and diagnosis guidelines is what I'd like to share with you today, um, particularly giving updates from the talk from last year to this year and just what's new. Why is AIDS still a crisis? Well, we've had 78 million people infected worldwide. 39 million people have died, and right now there are still 35 million people living with HIV-AIDS. Worldwide, that's a 0.8% prevalence. But as you can see from this map, it's not uniform. And the bulk of the disease is in sub-Saharan Africa. Total 35 million people living with AIDS. And in Africa, um, approximately, there's just 71% of all the people living with HIV AIDS are in sub-Saharan Africa, where 1 in, in 20 adults ages 15 to 49 are living with HIV AIDS. Astounding figures. Um, and when you consider even just on a yearly basis, one in 
1.5 million people are dying still of HIV AIDS and 2 million new infections per year. These are the statistics in terms of the World Health Organization on what's most current. 35 million people living with HIV AIDS and of that, 16 million are women. So definitely there's disparity with women and children carrying the bulk and majority of the disease burden. But I like to remember that even though we throw out a bunch of numbers and there's lots of statistics behind every statistic is a person. And I'd like to present some cases. And as I do so, I'm going to be asking some questions. And I really do want some audience participation and make this interactive. So when I ask a question, then get involved. Let's uh, talk this through together. Because there are many of you here, actually, who know a lot more about HIV AIDS than I do. And uh, there are those of you who are working currently in it, uh, who have been there longer than I have. So I'm just a representative. So we can learn from each other. Okay, George is a 31-year-old male. Um, he comes in, and this is his fourth visit. I'm going to adjust this a little bit because I feel like I'm hitting on things. Um, he has a right-sided draining ear. His ear is just draining goo, and it's very uncomfortable. Um, really, pulling on his ear doesn't create a lot of pain, but there's just a lot of prelent discharge in the ear. And as I look over his medical record, this is not his first time. He's been here like four times in the last six months in the clinic, um, multiple rounds of antibiotics, and sometimes it helps, it gets better, but then it recurs. What's the next step? What would you like to do next? HIV test. Yay, okay, this is an HIV lecture. So, yes, the answer is HIV test. Okay, any ideas on the diagnosis? Yeah? It, yes, he is HIV positive, and basically this is just a bacterial infection that is persistent. And we have Lillian, who is a 35-year-old female. She's got dried, hyperpigmented circular patches on both cheeks, somewhat scaly, been present for months, gradually getting bigger. Okay, think about what is the diagnosis. And... Possible Kaposi's, but before we go jump to that unusual one, um, what, let, what would be your next step? Yeah, scraping, a KOH prep would be, yeah, what I'd love to do. What else would you like to do for Lillian? HIV test, yes. Okay. And both George and Lillian were HIV positive which kind of illustrate that the very common presentation for an HIV-positive person is a persistent illness, either a persistent or recurring bacterial infection, or skin problems. Very, very common that they'll present with skin issues, or persistent headache, persistent fever, weight loss. Oral candidiasis is really easy to pick up. You don't want to miss it. Look in the mouth of people, and it's an age-defining illness. But what I saw this last visit compared to previous times I've been in Kenya is actually the most common presentation for an HIV-positive patient is a positive HIV test. <laughs> um, they come in for HTC, which is HIV testing and counseling, and uh, they get a positive test, and that's how they present. Sylvia is a 23-year-old female who presents as a new patient. She's doing well. She has no symptoms. She missed her period. So she thinks she might be pregnant. What would you like to do for her? What's your next step? Pregnancy test. Yay. Okay, so we get a pregnancy test, and it's positive. What's the next step from there? Yes, HIV test. Exactly. And 
She, unfortunately, was HIV positive. And this is what I'm seeing as the most common presentation, somebody who comes in totally asymptomatic, and um, they have a positive HIV test. It may be ANC, it's a ac- common acronym, antenatal care. So uh, a lot of these are getting picked up in the antenatal care uh, clinic. And there's a big push to know your status. And um, it's, it's really been helpful over time. Uganda years ago came out with the ABCs of HIV care and treatment. And Kenya didn't want to be left behind and came up with the ABCD. And the D was determining your status. There, at this point, are numerous rapid diagnostic tests. In Kenya, we have three um, that we use. Um, and the specific name I wouldn't worry too much about, somebody before the um, session asked me, well, is there a certain recommended test? Uh, what determines the, this test over another one in terms of the World Health Organization? And I said, really, it's a matter of supply, I think. Um, just what test that country's MOH is able to get a hold of. Um, Basically, what you need to know is that there are HIV tests. There are numerous ones out there, chemically um, similar and um, commercially different names and packaging. They're all dipsticks. They provide point-of-care treatment. Basically, the patients are brought in. We have a a room in the clinic that is for um, HTC, HIV testing and counseling. Patients are brought in. Um, they're counseled. If they agree, the test is done right there on the spot. Um, it's simple finger prick, and a drop of blood goes into the cassette with a reagent. And within 15 to 20 minutes, you get a test. Um, similar to our pregnancy test in terms of there's two lines, a control line to know, make sure that the test is working properly, and then uh, a line to tell you yes or no on testing for the patient. Um, we have... Um, KHB is our test that we use first, um, and then basically the guideline is if you use one uh, company for a test and get a positive, you do a confirmatory test using a different company. We used Unigol for our second line, and then uh, we have um, the first response as a third test that basically is the tiebreaker. So if you get a positive test, you do a second one to confirm. If there's discrepancy between those two, you do a third one. Okay, there are several campaigns and uh, strategies that have been used for testing. Know Your Status campaign, the Contact Tracing, and 909090. I'll describe those. Basically, there's been a real push for people to know their status, to get testing, whether they have symptoms or not. And it used to be that every patient was tested. We went through a phase where basically everyone that came to the clinic got tested. Um, We're now in a situation where... There's a lack of test kits. Um, They're on on shorter supply, so we don't necessarily test everybody, but there are criteria. Those have been honed down to um, test eligible patients. So to be eligible means either they've never been tested before or it's a new patient, basically coming in somebody who you don't have any records on and you don't know their status, or it's been a year since the last test. However, all pregnant women are tested at first visit and, again, in three months and breastfeeding women are tested, and then contacts. Contact tracing basically is very aggressive searching and testing of all contacts of an HIV-positive patient. So a patient comes in, they have a positive test, they immediately get questioned on where who and where are your children, who and where are your uh, household contacts, and who and where are your sexual partners, and all three of those groups are tested. All sexual partners, all household and all children. 
The 1990-90 campaign um, basically has to do with uh, HIV testing, linkage to care, and then success of ARV treatment. Um, 1990-90 refers to 90% of all eligible patients get tested, and then 90% of all the positive tests are enrolled into treatment and care, which is the linkage to care, and then 90% of all patients on um, ARV treatment have successful suppression of their viral load. These are targets. And our staff is extremely proud that they've been able to meet these targets. In fact, at sometimes in, in the reports are able to claim 99% of all eligible patients have been tested. And they get very aggressive about searching out uh, HIV-positive um, patients. I was just amazed at the number of cell phones that were out there. This is a community where basically they're living in mud and dung houses without electricity, yet everybody's got a cell phone. And it helps with linkage to care. Um, basically, linkage to care is enrolling the HIV-positive patient into treatment and care. If someone on the spot at their point of care testing, um, if they don't enroll immediately, you know, they're counseled. They're allowed to go home. We're not a prison. We're not going to keep them to get them enrolled. But they get a phone call in a week if they haven't come back to enroll. And if they still don't show up, um, the clinic workers go out and visit them in their home. And they counsel them and really try to show all the advantages to ARV treatment, that HIV care is totally free. By Kenya law, all HIV care is free. The ARVs, the treatment for opportunistic infections, all their monthly visits, everything is free. And uh, they're told of the importance of art treatment, both to get well and to stay well, and also to accept the status and move on, that HIV positivity does not mean immediate death, and there is hope, and to not wait, because if they just wait until there are later stages, those are harder to turn around. So they're educated and counseled to get enrolled. Okay, this is Deborah and Rosemary. Uh, Deborah is a 25-year-old mom. Uh, two months ago, she came in for ANC, antenatal care, and tested positive for HIV. She returns with her four-year-old daughter, Rosemary. The child has a rash, but otherwise she's well. There's no fever, no weight loss, no diarrhea. She's adorable. Uh, what is our next step? HIV testing. HIV testing. Yay. Okay. That's true. You want to get an HIV test. Why? Skin problem, she's a household contact, yeah. She's eligible. She falls into the eligible criteria because of it being a family contact. Um, true. I mean, she's got a chronic issue, so that would be another good reason. What stage is she? Well, let's consider staging. Um, stage one is asymptomatic, no symptoms whatsoever. Stage two, um, skin disorders, respiratory infections, or herpes zoster history. Stage three is defined by pulmonary TB or diarrhea over a month, fever over a month, oral thrush, hepatitis B. Um, and that can be uh, clinical disease or positive tests. And then stage four is going to be defined by things like Saposi's sarcoma, extra pulmonary TB, PCP, used to be pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, is now PJP, pneumocystis durovecchi. Um, but you'll see in the literature, the PCP is still often used, even though it's called pneumocystis urovecchi. Uh, toxoplasmosis and CRAG, which is the uh, acronym for cryptococcal meningitis, or cryptococcal antigen, which could often mean uh, cryptococcal meningitis, and then esophageal candidiasis, 
um, is stage four rather than oral candidiasis being stage three. Okay. So she'd be so. Yeah, good, excellent. So um, our little rosemary is stage two. Unless we have some of these other, do we know if she has TB yet, or do we know if she has cryptococcus or hepatitis B? No. Okay, so that gets us to our baseline testing. A good point. Um, so all HIV positive patients are going to be enrolled into treatment and care um, first with some baseline lab values. And this is partly um, for knowing how to move forward with treatment, but also for staging purposes and to know whether to initiate um, antiretrovirals. So the initial test includes a CV CD4 test, which is um, uh, the screen to determine ARV treatment. Um, all HIV-positive patients, women, are tested for pregnancy. Um, also, we want to get a baseline CBC. If someone's already anemic, you don't want to use AZT because that causes bone marrow suppression and would worsen anemia. We also get baseline liver function tests and kidney tests, um, screen for tuberculosis, and get a viral load by DBS. Now, there's a little um, variability per country on that. Uh, some the the um, guidelines for when to do a dry blood spot are a little bit in flux right now on whether you just get it automatically or only if they're going on ART. But the dry blood spot is coming into being uh, a really a standard of care, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. A couple other tests that are done in baseline screening are screening for hepatitis B, which is done with a dipstick, hepatitis B surface antigen. If that's positive, it indicates infection and then the patient is stage 3, 4 and needs ART. And then CRAG is the cryptococcal antigen dipstick test, indicates cryptococcal disease, probably meningitis, which then also raises the staging that would need ART as well as uh, fluconazole treatment. I've just been amazed when I came back at the numerous dipstick tests. And these are just these are so wonderful because they don't require uh, electricity, they don't require a lot of big lab equipment, and really don't require a lot of uh, extensive training. They're si simple to use, require only a drop of blood. Um, it's amazing. I definitely new things on the horizon. This is the uh, Crag dipstick for cryptococcus. Okay, so once uh, we have staging, and let's go back to Rosemary. So she, let's see, her CD4 count was 695. Uh, she was hepatitis surface antigen negative and cryptococcal antigen negative. So what stage is she? I think you mentioned it. Three. Yeah. Say stage three. Why do you say say stage three? <coughs> CD4 was over 500. Mm -hmm. So she's stage two um, based on dermatitis. Um, the other numbers were okay. Would you start treatment on her? I see some no's. Not based on staging or CD4 count, but... Based on age, right, and that's a new, there's a new change in that guideline, so we'll get to that. Um, so when do you start uh, antiretroviral therapy? Um, definitely we follow the WHO guidelines, and it's three drugs. Um, there's not really any place anymore for single drug antiretroviral therapy because it's inevitably going to produce resistance. So it's dr three drug ART. And it gets started if the CD4 count is less than 500, if a patient is clinically stage 3 or 4, or if the patient is pregnant or less than 10. 
So the less than 10-year-olds and pregnant HIV-positive patients, children under 10 and pregnant moms, are started on ART treatment irregardless of what their CD4 count is or their staging. Do they stay so, it? Does a child age out of it, or are they on it continually? She asked, does the child age out of it, or do, do they, continue, they continue? Once somebody is on ART, they, they continue ART. The complications in a pregnant woman. Okay, excellent question. He said, what about teratogenic possibilities? And that's a change. Last year, um, there was a concern about ephedrine and nevirapine being teratogenic. That has changed. And now it's decided neither one of those are teratogenic. So of the list of ARV, they're, they're off the list. So in terms of current drugs used for treatment, None of those are considered teratogens. And so kind of basically the guideline is all, preg- all HIV-positive pregnant women get put on three-drug ART mm-hmm. across the board. Okay, in terms of looking at the criteria and some of the changes, particularly from last year's talk, I realize some, some and I, I realize a lot of some of the charts that I've got up here are very small. You may not be able to read them. But I went ahead and included them so that if you're downloading the presentation, then you'll be able to have that data. And the chart there is from last year in terms of looking at 2010 to 2013, and now I just want to move forward uh, to 2015 and kind of contrast some of the changes. Um, So criteria for art therapy still is CD4 count less than 500. It used to be less than 250 or less than 300. Now it's 500. Basically, that number is moving up, so it encompasses more people. So HIV-positive patients do not have to be as sick to get on ART treatment. Same for children in that the age has gone up. It used to be under fives. Now it's under ten. So more children are allowed to be on ART treatment. Um, All pregnant women uh, is the same as the last year, and also all co-infected with TB and HIV, though all those patients get put on ART treatment. And now um, hepatitis B as well, co-infection. It used to be if if the Hepatitis B patient had cirrhosis or severe disease, then they qualify, but now if they just test positive, if there's co-infection with either TB or hepatitis B and HIV, they get put on ART treatment. Another change, the only uh, parameter that has changed shifting downward in terms of numbers uh, in treatment would be discoordinate couples. It used to be that we treated both the positive and the negative partners. Now we don't treat the HIV-negative partner. We stick to just the HIV-positive partner. Uh, the reason being if, the, if their um, viral load is undetectable, they should not be transmitting disease, and it saves all the toxicities for the HIV-negative partner. Okay, so going back to our dear Rosemary, uh, we said she's stage two, and we was, w- would we start her on treatment? Yes, yes based on age, because she's under 10. So what treatment would we give her? Yes. Exactly. And what else? Yeah, septum. Um, And multivitamins. So um, this gets us into treatment, includes treatment for opportunistic infections. So initial treatment, um, and even for those who don't qualify for art therapy, for the HIV-positive patients who have a CD4 count over 500 or are stages only one or two, not pregnant, not a child, 
they still get care and treatment, and that includes um, cotrimoxazole, uh, Bactrim or Septrim, as well as multivitamins. And this is to prevent um, opportunistic infections, not only PCP, but also malaria um, and diarrheal diseases and, and pneumonia and respiratory infections. Then for those HIV-positive patients whose CD4 count is under 500 or stages 3 or 4, they get started on the cotrimoxazole, multivitamins, and ART therapy. She said, do they need more iron than the regular multivitamin? That's a good question. I personally at the, this moment don't know what the milligrams are in the multivitamin that we give out. It's kind of a standard one. gets prepackaged for everybody. I'm sorry, I don't know the milligrams for that. I know that um, patients in their baseline testing have a, a CBC blood counts checked, and if they are anemic, then they are put on supplemental iron and folate as well. Yeah. Okay, now for uh, drugs and treatment. The um, first-line treatment is tenofovir, lamivudine, and ephedrine, which is TDF, 3TC, and EFV. I tell you, these names are complicated, um, and uh, not only are there long, big names, but then there's all these abbreviations as well. And uh, the recommendations kind of change frequently, so I hope I don't get tongue-tied with all this. What's beautiful about this combination is that it's three drugs in one pill once a day. Woohoo! So it's very convenient and really has fairly low toxicity. And this is kind of the new regimen for almost everybody. Um, it's first-line treatment for adults. Um, it's first-line treatment for pregnant women, first-line treatment for TB patients um, and older children. There's also a first-line second option. Um, this is what kind of was the first-line treatment last year, lamivudine, nivirapine, and zidovudine. And it's also one tablet combo, but unfortunately it's twice a day. So it's not quite as convenient. And this cannot be used um, for TB patients uh, in treatment because nivirapine is going to displace rifampicin and inhibit it. So you have to switch out nivirapine to efavirenz for TB patients. This is the charting, um, and kind of to point out, so I want you to have this reference when you come back to this, but also just to kind of point out, there's lots of letters on here. And if you feel confused looking at this, you're right. Uh, it is confusing. And every year I go back and it's a different chart, um, and it's hard to keep track, and that's why we have references. And um, the World Health Organization really kind of came up with guidelines, new guidelines in 2013, um, a lot of countries are kind of um, melding those into their own country-specific guidelines. Kenya had theirs that they came out in 2014 and then really just kind of put on into utilization April of this year. So these are kind of evolving into the state-of-art care. Okay, now if a patient has, is on first-line treatment but fails that, and we'll talk about that in a minute in terms of how do you figure that out and, and walk through that process, um, the second line uh, ART treatment includes four drugs. That's basically what you need to remember. There's four drugs, and you try to avoid whatever the patient was on previously. And there's kind of a, sort of a mixing and matching that can happen. Um, you've got some combinations that can then be put together. Um, Atazanavir and Ritonavir come as a combo pill. Lopinavir, Ritonavir comes as a combo pill. So you want to pick one of those, the 
etazanavir and ritonavir or lapinavir ritonavir. And then add with that either the tenofovir lamivudine or lamivudine zidovudine. Let's get a picture. This is a little bit more helpful to me when I can get the boxes and I can say, okay, I can use this and this, or I can use this and this, and or I can use this and this one, this one, this one. So you can see the kind of the combinations in terms of the atanzanavir and ritonavir over here on the left with the two other combinations or the lopinavir, ritonavir on the right. And then you take that initial and then put the other combo with it, either the um, TDF, 3TC, or 3TC, AZT. Same over there. Yes, confusing. Um, but wait, there's more. Um, there's also a Bacavir lamivudine, and that's a combo pill that you can then take one of those other twos to match with it. So there's six combinations um, in terms of second-line treatment, and it, I know that this is nowhere close to what we have available in the States, but it's a lot of combinations in terms of trying to get people covered adequately to get treatment success. Okay. Now, for children, um, it's gets a little complicated in terms of the pediatric treatment varies depending on the age and the weight of the child. Um, there's a difference between three years under three and over three, um, but for just generalities, the first line for pediatrics is the combination, three-drug combination of abacavir, lamivudine, and efavirenz. Um, what is super nice um, is that the lamivudine in the past was a liquid, um, and uh, the I believe it's the tenofovir-lamivudine combo for children is a liquid, which sounds like a real good idea in theory, but those liquids require refrigeration. If you kind of remember that Maasai house where people in my neighborhood, they don't have refrigeration, so that's a challenge. What has come out now is chewable tablets or dissolvable tablets or dispensable, they call them. Um, and they, the, the clinic workers will instruct the mom on how to kind of crunch it up or put it in a uh, spoon and let it dissolve and give it to the child that way. It's great because it doesn't require refrigeration. As I mentioned, under three is slightly different. Um, basically, under three, um, these are kids who we assume have had um, transmission from their mother, probably have been exposed to nevirapine, and we'll talk about that um, in the preventing mother-to-child transmission. Um, but for under three, it's basically four-drug regimen. And you get the lopinavir-ritonavir combo, again, with either, um, so you get abacavir or zidovudine plus lamivudine, plus the uh, lopinavir ritonavir. Um, it's kind of inconvenient, two tablets twice a day, so it's, it's a little bit harder. And kind of the, one of the take-home messages is that it's kind of inconvenient, so you want to try to move to a more convenient regimen as soon as you can. So once a child gets to 35 kilos and, and is pretty stable with that weight, then you can switch them over to the adult regimen, um, which is the one tablet once a day, and it's just so much easier. Okay, again, fancy chart that you'll have as a reference, and from at this point, there's lots of letters, and it's confusing, and that's true. Um, and the challenge with some of the treatment is that the regimens keep changing um, every few years, depending on what's available, um, what donor organizations um, will agree to cover, what pharmaceutical companies can produce, um, but you'll have that as a reference. Okay, 
In pregnancy, um, fortunately, the standard um, adult regimen of tenofovir, lamivudine, and favarins is the first-line treatment. Again, very convenient, one tablet once a day. And with treatment and care, we cover opportunistic infections. So everybody gets Bactrim. Um, like I mentioned, it's preventing not only um, PCP, but also diarrhea and malaria, uh, which is very handy because um, basically pregnant women in the tropics may undergo preventing malaria treatment uh, with periodic Fancidar, and they don't have to do that if they're on cotrimoxazole. And then um, fungal infections, either oral or esophageal candidiasis or CRAG positive, those patients need to be on fluconazole, which is an 800 milligram first-time stat dose and then followed by 200 a day. There's also TB uh, prophylaxis with INH, kind of depending on age, generally saving that for older infants and adults and children. But if a baby has been exposed, then you go ahead and cover them as well. Knowing that pyridoxine, vitamin B6, needs to be added for anybody on INH to prevent peripheral neuropathy. There's also acyclovir for those with a history of zoster. Okay, let's talk a minute about tuberculosis as an opportunistic infection. Definitely TB and HIV travel together. And it's critically important to remember every HIV-positive patient needs to be screened for TB, and every TB patient needs to be tested for HIV. They often go together. What's new on the scene is something called Gene Expert, um, which is basically a PCR, nucleic acid amplification test, looking for tuberculosis, and not only to diagnose and pick up tuberculosis, but also looking for multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis and rifampicin resistance. Yes, sir? Do you see much rifampicin resistance in Kenya? Oh, there is a fair amount. Yeah, and they're scared about it because there's limited treatment options. So, um, so you automatically treat for it. You don't wait until you realize that you're not getting any success and then start. Actually, um, he's saying, you know, do we, do we assume multiple drug resistance and treat for that, waiting for treatment? Actually, the gene expert now is readily available, amazingly, um, to where the, the recommendation is for patients to undergo the gene expert um, testing prior to treatment. And sometimes it's hard to get that. Um, but at least in our facility, we can um, get the samples and ship them in. So even out in the field, we can collect the sputum and then ship it in for uh, the gene expert testing. And then the results of that are going to kind of guide what TB meds you're going to use. Yeah, it's, I, that was kind of floored that that was available out there. Um, some side effects. Oh, just going back a second on TB treatment, another change. Um, it used to be that if um, someone was co-infected with HIV and TB, um, that you would treat the TB first. And, in fact, you know, even up to 50 days before starting ART treatment because of the immune reconstitution syndrome. Um, well, that window has narrowed. We do still start TB meds and cotrimoxazole first, but delaying only maybe a week or two at most before starting ART therapy. Somebody had a question? It is not on spot testing. Um, no, it has to go into a reference lab. Um, 
But they were getting results, I would say, within a few days to a week. Yeah. So it kind of depends on the illness of the patient. And, um, you know, each, each case you kind of have to take it and see uh, how ill someone is. But um, if they're relatively stable, then sometimes they wait. Uh, just touching on some side effects, um, nevirapine is not considered teratogenic any longer, but it can't be used uh, in TB treatment because it uh, inhibits rifampicin. Uh, Zidovidine you wouldn't be using in somebody who's anemic. Um, Efavirenz is relatively safe but does cause some hallucinations. It's not considered teratogenic anymore. That's a change. Um, tenofovir can cause renal toxicity. Ritonavir is problematic still with lipodystrophy. They all can cause some anorexia and rash and hepatitis. But for the most part, the tenofovir, lamivudine, efavirenz combo is pretty low side effect profile, and it's, it's tolerated really pretty well. Savudine is completely taken off the map. Uh, it's just not in the guidelines at all anywhere because of the neuropathy. There have been patients paralyzed from it, and it causes irreversible lipodystrophy. We've talked about the caveats with nevirapine, um, and just kind of the comment that babies already sensitized to it would have to be on a different medicine. Okay, this is Naropil, and she is a 24-year-old Maasai lady. Um, she was found to be HIV positive on ANC antenatal care testing started on ART in June of 2010, um, AZT, 3TC, and uh, MVP. Then she had a dry blood spot of April 2011 that was negative and also a repeat negative a year later. And her most recent uh, viral load was April 2014 that was also negative. What's your next step? What would you like to do for her? That's it? It's real, it's real simple. Yeah, maintenance, you bet. She's doing good. She's a success. Woohoo! I, I, was, I was so glad to see her. She's doing well. And so basically, you, you want to keep going. You know, keep her in maintenance. Continue therapy. Continue therapy. Um, this kind of is a, a good illustration to just bring in the viral load and the uh, DBS nomenclature, all those terms, to kind of explain them. Um, basically, the viral load test, it's a PCR nucleic amplification uh, looking for HIV RNA. And the goal is zero, um, or as defined on what the forms say, is um, less than LDL, which is the lowest detectable limit. So you want to be even less than lower detectable limit. And so that's basically nothing, zero. And then uh, DBS is dried blood spot. Okay. This is um, also a very elegant process. I'm just uh, floored at what, what they're able to do out there. Um, with very limited resources, some of the testing that can be done now is just amazing to me. Um, the dried blood spot is simply that, a dried spot of blood. And the um, clinician, the um, laboratory worker here, is holding up the tray of the dried blood spot cards. Um, this is done by a reference lab. So the um, sample, the uh, blood spot, is collected point of care. And doing that does not require electricity or lab or refrigeration, minimal training. Um, 
Simply a finger stick or heel stick, a drop of blood is acquired and put on the card. And uh, then they ship these in to, uh, from our uh, location, they send them in to Nairobi where it's done at a reference lab. And then the results come back by email. And uh, it's all done. I know, amazing. And um, patients are actually uh, getting this. I mean, out in very remote rural areas, they're getting uh, state-of-the-art care with viral loads. So uh, when do we get the uh, dried blood spot? Basically, uh, every new HIV-positive patient gets one initially. Um, Pregnant HIV-positive patients get one initially and then repeat it in six months. And then basically, annually, it's rechecked. And uh, it used to be CD4 counts that we followed, and we still get those um, because that's part of the criteria for deciding if somebody's going to be on ART. But I, what I saw is that there, that's really dropping off, and the viral load testing is really coming up as standard of care. And I'm, I'm just kind of amazed at how the, the gap is, is narrowing between, you know, what is state of the art here in the U.S. or, or Western Europe compared to developing country. It's, it's comforting. It's encouraging to see. She said, if your clinic is not doing some of these, um, I guess I would definitely turn to the Ministry of Health in your country. Um, Our clinic is just very fortunate to have a close connection and and rapport with our um, the county Ministry of Health, and uh, Kenya is really trying to follow the world guidelines. So we have some of those advantages. And it, I, I realize, too, a lot of it has to do with donors and whether your country has the donor agencies to provide some of the infrastructure. You know, the dry blood spot, the viral load testing does require a pretty, pretty sensitive and, and, you know, reference lab. And we don't have that equipment. Um, so it does have to be available someplace that's accessible to you. Okay, this is Elijah. And he is a 13-year-old boy. Um, he was placed on art therapy in 2008. Unfortunately, a CD4 count, which was initially 64, went down to zero. So he was changed to second line, a Bacavir, 3TC, and Feverens. He presents to us with a persistent cough that he's had for months, malaise, and shortness of breath that gets worse with laying down. And you can kind of see his chest there. He's just kind of emaciated. Then he's retracting really kind of laboring to breathe. His mother actually had taken him into Nairobi for a CT scan. So I actually had the results of a CT scan that shows that he has a right pleural effusion, bilateral perihilar alveolar opacities, patchy and confluent, patchy infiltrates on the left, confluent on the right, and extensive confluent mediastinal lymphadenopathy. The radiologist was concerned about pneumocystis durovecchi, as well as possible TB or lymphoma. When I see him, he presents with a widespread rough rash. He's just covered head to toe with this just papular eruption. Of note, his weight, which was 31 kilos in January, is now 29. He's got ronchi and retractions in his chest. He's on palpation of his abdomen. He's kind of got a kind of firm nodule in the right upper quadrant. And then notably, his thighs are swollen, and they're very indurated, I mean hard, hard. Not hot, not red, but in the distribution of the quadriceps, the muscles just 
great firm uh, in duration. It's tender. I don't know exactly what's going on with uh, Elijah, and I'm very concerned about him. Um, any thoughts? What would be your next step? Any thoughts on diagnosis? And I don't necessarily have all the answers, but any thoughts? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got advancing disease. Yeah. He said, do we treat the TB first? Well, um, finding out if he has TB is definitely one of the goals. And, and we actually um, talked about getting samples and either sending him into the town to get gene expert or getting samples ourselves. But, yeah, d- determining if he's got TB at this point is critical. Yeah, I think critical point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, kind of bottom line is that he's a treatment failure. He's a treatment failure, unfortunately, and very sadly. Um, and I'm hoping we can get him turned around. But this gives us a chance to talk about treatment failure and how we define that. Like I said, uh, viral load and dry blood spots are really kind of coming up as a standard of care for diagnosis uh, and management and follow-up and kind of defining if someone is being successful on their ART treatment. Um, Lack of success is basically defined as over a 1,000 copies. So that's kind of the... the, um, the line to draw for um, considering changing of regimens. However, there's a limited second line, and you notice that I didn't even put third line on the board this time because third line is not listed in the guidelines. Basically, if somebody fails second line treatment, you have to go to, for Kenya, you have to go to a national board to discuss third line treatment. Um, They're that serious about it in terms of trying to keep it under wraps. So the guidelines for um, adherence and uh, regimen um, determining if there's failure, if viral load is over 1,000, then you start the algorithm. And the first step is not to change the therapy. First step is to question adherence, to talk to the patient and counsel. Are you taking your meds? Are you getting your meds? And a lot of times patients, there's failure to take the meds. Either they don't have the bus fare and they're not picking them up, or they're forgetting doses, missing doses, or taking them at the wrong time of day. For example, if somebody takes a pill at 7 o'clock one day, 7 o'clock in the morning, but then the next day they don't take it till 10 o'clock at night. Well, they're taking it every day, but that's a huge gap, and that can um, spur resistance developing. And alcohol is a huge problem, um, not necessarily impeding the drugs maybe, but causing malnutrition and people forget to take their medicines when they're drinking. So that's a problem. So if a viral load is over 1,000, first they counsel and try to teach and educate and get somebody to take their medicines regularly, and then they repeat the viral load in three months. So one test is not enough to change, but they counsel and then repeat in three months. If it's still over 1,000, they go back and do more counseling and then do direct observe therapy where you actually hand the pill to the patient and watch them swallow it, either at home or in the clinic or wherever you can get it done. And then it's important to check for other problems that may be affecting therapy, malnutrition or persistent opportunistic infections. If somebody has active TB, hepatitis, cryptococcal disease, any of those opportunistic infections, those could be the reason why the drugs are not failing, why they're failing, why they're not working. So last on the line is declaring a biologic failure and changing the regimen. 
And really, uh, treatment failures are more often a failure of adherence rather than failure of the medicines. What was really encouraging, though, was seeing the number of treatment successes. This is Bernard, who is a 19-year-old university student. He's uh, HIV positive, but he's under good control. He's taking TDF, 3TC, and EFV, and his viral load is less than LDL, so it's less than lowest detectable level. There are some um, challenges. Uh, Some of the challenges I saw were um, manufacturers would shift. Um, Donor organizations would go from one manufacturer to another because of cost. Well, that might mean the pill size would change or the color would change, and then people would get confused, like, well, what is the pill that I'm taking? And that causes some problems. Um, The pharmacist was telling me she can order the medicines on time, but there's more often than not, there's a delay in when the supply arrives. Um, They're frequently trying to kind of juggle patients that are coming in. Can we make sure they get a month's supply? Um, And they they used to routinely give longer. Uh, Maybe they give two or three months supply, and now that practice has decreased to trying to stick to just a month because they just don't have the supply um, to go that far out. Um, We talked about children's liquids need refrigeration. Um, Then cultural aspects. People move. Uh, For the Maasai, they are semi-nomadic. If there's a drought, they move their cows and their sheep and goats to greener pastures, literally. And the people move, and they might not be by the clinic, and it's harder for them to get their medications. There's also gaps in funding. Um, IGPAF is providing uh, dollars for opportunistic infections. WeWorld is paying for ARV drugs. Who's paying for the staff? Who's paying for the building maintenance? So there's a lot of infrastructure that donor organizations will say, well, we'll cover medicines, but we ain't going to cover the infrastructure. And, but you need the infrastructure to carry out the program. So it's a challenge. Priscilla, um, this was fun. She walked in and sat down. And a clinic worker had stepped out. So I started in with my patchy Maasai. And I asked, well, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Anything wrong? No, no problem. I was like, Okay. And I got her name, and uh, we got her weight, and I got her blood pressure. And so I was kind of going down the list of screening tests, uh, you know, questions about TB, questions about pregnancy, blah, 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 going through it. And then we couldn't find her file. And then finally she said, oh, I'm not the patient. (laughs) (laughs) She had come in for the patient to get the medicines. And we were kind of like, okay, well, next month have the patient come in because we really kind of need to see them. Yeah, yeah, text her. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Hey, can you call her on the phone? It's true. Um, So, you know, okay, what do we do? Do we say, no, you're not the patient, you can't, we can't give you the medicines, which is probably, you know, for HIPAA violation, we couldn't do that here. Um, but uh, for her, okay, yeah, it's more important for the patient to get the medicines. So we actually do allow family members and friends to pick up medicines for patients. Not all the time, but kind of squeak that in because it, people need to stay on the ARVs. Um, I also saw several patients like Bernard, the university student. He kind of came in. He said, I start classes next week. I can't get here until December. Can I have a three-month supply? So. Okay, we'll bend it for you too. So sometimes patients will determine how many months supply they will get depending on when they can come in. Um, text somebody, no joke. Um, the clinic workers will call people on the phone if they are no-shows. 
Um, and sometimes they go to their house or they will deliver meds. Um, I had one clinic worker who uh, worked at the clinic. Um, her home was in the town about 30 minutes away, and so it was not unusual for her to take medicines home with her and then deliver them to somebody in the town. So it's kind of like we do whatever we can to try to keep um, maintenance therapy going. Okay, this is Nashapai. She is a five-month-old girl. She came in for a well baby check. She's cues a button. Um, and to get her routine vaccines, after which she was not very happy with me. Um, the mom is HIV positive. The baby is not. So um, the goal here was a um, negative dried blood spot. And um, we're going to talk about kind of patients who are exposed. Um, preventing mother-to-child transmission PMTCT, it's also PMTC and PMCT, PMCT, PM, whatever. Um, <laughs> preventing mother-to-child transmission. Oh, I think I, okay, there we go. Um, there's also a couple other strategies or campaigns um, different donors have um, pushed. Um, in Kenya, there is a beyond zero. They don't want to be just zero. They want to be beyond zero so that no child would get HIV and egg path has a similar campaign until no child has HIV. And it is fun to see that this is having success. This is having progress that I've seen over the past few years. Um, by law, every pregnant woman in Kenya is tested for HIV at their first visit and then repeated in three months. And if they're positive, they're put immediately on three-drug ART, um, the standard adult, uh, tenofovir, lamivudine, and efavirenz. Then, for the baby, um, they basically get two medications, cotrimoxazole and nevirapine. Um, the nevirapine is started right away and then does not have to go the full stretch of breastfeeding. Um, last year it was basically the recommendation they stayed on nevirapine um, for a very long time until they finished breastfeeding. That's no longer the recommendation. Basically, if their dried blood spot, so the viral load is negative, the dry blood spot is checked at six weeks. If it's negative, then the verapine can be discontinued somewhere between the six and 12-week mark. I've seen both. Um, but basically, if, if viral load is negative, the verapine can stop. But the cotrimoxazole continues, and that continues up till 18 months um, because it's going to help prevent diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria, all those. Dapsone is used instead for uh, folks who are allergic to um, and we definitely continue to encourage breastfeeding. We've, the last decade, we've just stayed breastfeeding only, breastfeeding only, um, because children actually get more illness if they're using bottle feeding that may have contaminated water. Um, and uh, HIV transmission is actually less with breastfeeding than with um, mixed feeds. Okay, but the goal is, you know, the mother is who, the, the mom who was picked up, hopefully in the antenatal clinic, HIV positive, she was put immediately on ART treatment. And the goal is to keep her viral load suppressed at zero. So she should not be transmitting to the baby. That's the goal. Um, so the exposed infant gets testing routinely uh, to see if they've stayed negative or if they convert to positive. The, basically, the three markers are the dried blood spot at six weeks, and then they do antibody testing at nine months and 18 months. And there's some guidelines with that. 
And again, a flow chart. With everything with AIDS treatment and care, there are flow charts, flow charts. But they're helpful um, because it does get complicated. You know, well, what about in this instance? What about in this instance? And that's why you get pages and pages of um, guidelines like this to, to use as a reference guide. Okay, one of the most exciting events while I was there was a graduation party. And this was fun. The whole community came out. Um, basically, we were celebrating all the kids who had graduated from the PMCT program. So they had negative tests at 18 months. They were declared HIV-free. So it was, it was exciting. And there were over 100 of them um, this time around. And uh, we're hoping to see more graduation parties. Just a note about uh, a couple other prevention points. Um, discordant couples, again, three-drug ART is used for the HIV-positive partner, but not for the HIV-negative partner. And post-exposure prophylaxis, really the only changes there is that it can be given up to 72 hours, uh, not just 24 hours. And um, there's also some stratification in terms of risk, very similar to what we do in the States. If it's extremely low risk, if it's intact skin, if it's um, saliva, urine, you know, not blood and uh, not a percutaneous stick, those kinds of things, then um, if it's low risk, ART treatment is not necessary. High risk would be started. And um, the medications are there as well as the counseling and the testing very similar to U.S. standards. Okay. It's time to quit. Um, at this point, I want to be sensitive to those who need to leave. I'll stay up here if you have questions. And thank you very much. I appreciate it. Feel free to give me a call right now. Thanks.